right, we'll be looking at Psalm 44 as we continue in our sermon series, Working Through the Psalms, Stronger Through Prayer. Psalm 44. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant, our heart has not turned back, nor our step, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hand to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is, our soul is bowed, down, bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're following along, you want to keep that open because we'll be carefully working through that. Our sermon series, as I've said, is stronger through prayer as we go through the Psalms. We need to pray more. We need to grow to pray and pray to grow, right? That's what we learned in, um, last time when we looked at Psalm 40. Now, I hope you've been praying more. And as you pray more, I hope that you have started to see God answer your prayers. As we pray more, how do we pray in such a way for God to answer your prayers? I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Like, if we knew that God's going to answer our prayers more, we would pray more, right? What's the answer? How do we pray more effectively so we know that God answers our prayers? I'm going to give you the answer right off the bat, and we'll start to unfold and unpack what that really means. The way that we can pray so that God answers our prayers is to pray God-centered prayer. 
God-centered. God-centered prayer. You might be thinking, oh yeah, I do pray God-centered prayers. I pray to God. I don't pray to um, Buddha or to any other deity. That's good. I'm glad you don't pray to any of those other gods. But we want to make sure that we understand what it means to make God-centered prayers. The kind that always get answered. Okay, so what does it mean to pray God-centered prayers? The psalmist in Psalm 44, he shows us how. He makes it very clear who God is and how we are to engage God as we talk to him in prayerful conversation. There we go, okay? That's what we're going to work on, how to make God-centered prayers that get answered. First point, we want to be clear of God's sovereign kindness. If you want to follow along, I have the sermon outline in the back of the programs there for you as well. First point, clarity about God's sovereign kindness. Look at verse 1, which starts with, To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. Okay? Right there, the psalmist is reflecting, reminiscing on the glory days back when God's promises were being fulfilled right before the people's eyes. People were growing. They were going to a place. Hundreds of years of Israel's history are covered in those two verses. And it summarizes the first six books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Joshua. What did that look like? Well, after the creation, it started with Abraham and Sarah, right? The covenant promises made to Abraham and Sarah. And from them, it grew to a family of 70. And that 70, they went into Egypt. And they came out of Egypt from 70 to 2 million. All of that. Out of the Exodus. And they went through the wilderness. And they went into the promised land. God planted them there. There were battles along the way, real threats of death to get into that promised land. Verse 3, for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm, the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Just think back to your Old Testament history. The signs and wonders of deliverance against Pharaoh that God accomplished in Egypt, right? And then when they came out of Egypt, they faced all these different people groups who opposed them as they were making their way to the promised land. All of that. A Christian was talking with his atheist friend about um, the God who set his people free from slavery in Egypt. And the Christian was just praising God about all that he did with the plagues and the climactic battle where, you know, Israel was freed and they were on their way, but then they came right to the foot of the Red Sea and they were pinned there and hot on their heels was the, were the Egyptians. And what would God do? He parted the waters so that Israel could get through. And as the Egyptians were following them, he closed up the waters and defeated the enemy. God was praised. Moses wrote a song of deliverance. And this Christian guy was just marveling at the God and all the miracles that he performed, the signs and wonders. And his atheist friend said, well, even if that were true, the explanation is, the scientific explanation for that part of the wa- where the waters parted, 
You see, God didn't part the waters. The area where they crossed over, it was only like about a foot of water. It was shallow, and that's how Israel got across. And stunned, the Christian was like, ooh, he, he seemed like he was stumped. And then he said, that's so amazing. Praise God that he defeated the Egyptians in only a foot of water, right? God, the sovereign God, he was able to win this deliverance for his people. And then, not only that, he had to work with Joshua and the next generation who hadn't seen all these miracles. He had to convince them to take up arms, risk their lives to go into the land, into the promised land, and they did. That is all God. And when you recognize this sovereign God, you know what else you see? Did you notice that in verse 3, the last line there? Verse 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. It was God who loved and delighted making all these things possible for his people. There was a glow on God's face from sheer joy in making his promises come true for his people. He's like, he just so wanted good for his people. Like, he was far more excited for them than they were. It's like, I want to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, and there are the Israelites grumbling, dragging their feet, unable to see the glorious goal. Forty years, God was bringing these people along. Could they not see the story? And yet, how is it described? How is God's disp disposition described? Yet, the light of your face, for you delighted in them. I mean, how reassuring is that line for us? How kind and gracious is the God of Israel that he loves his people like that? And I'm just so glad that that line is in the Bible for us, too. And you know, from these verses, you see the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Okay, the non-believing, um, atheist friend, neighbor, what have you. The non-believer believes that they have acted to accomplish all that they have in their lives. Their own sword, their own arm, their own work, and maybe some luck, sure. But the believer believes that even as they act, that it is God who has acted through them. You know, that's the tension that we're, we should be familiar with, the tension that's called between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I go to work, I put in the hours, I make the money, I go to the store to buy the food, I bring it home, I heat it up and prepare it, and I eat it. And before I eat it, I say, thank you, God, for all of that. And it's like, Why? I did it all, but why do I say thank you to God? And of course, I hope all of us recognize that we are responsible moral agents, but I am also responsible for acknowledging God's hand. And we, it's like sometimes we fail to see all that God has done in our lives. For instance, I had no choice in being born to the parents that I have. I had no control over how they would treat me. I had no real say in where my parents would settle down and raise me in my formative years, which really shapes who I am. 
I had no choice in how I would look or what genes I would inherit to be the kind of person that I am, right? All these things out of my control. Sure, I have to make decisions throughout life, but God was the one who was working and presenting all these opportunities and shaping my life. So much out of our control, and yet here we are saying, I did it all. No, but the psalmist is responding to the situation where God has him. See, he is able to respond. He has response ability. Ability to respond. That's what responsibility is, right? That's where God places us and he directs our lives and we respond to him. Many people would find it hard to believe in God. They'd rather say, my life was shaped by luck or random chance. And who wants to believe that? That's the difference between the believer and the non-believer. The non-believer does not acknowledge the sovereign God for, and that is human rebellion. When we acknowledge God's sovereignty, that is human responsibility. In thinking about this sovereign God, he responds and he makes a God-centered prayer. Look at verse 4. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. It's very clear that um, God's hand is acknowledged to the point that the psalmist has to say, it can't be anything else but you, O God. My sword can't save me. And as a result, the psalmist is putting himself under God as second, submitting to the one who acknowledges that he acknowledges is greater than he. All of the fallen humanity who have rejected God would boast in themselves, but God's people boast in God first. Now, as we hear this and we read God's word like this, do we realize what is happening? What the word of God is doing to us, it is reorienting our perspective to see things God's way. It's like God is breaking into our minds, invading our thinking, so that we would be compelled to believe God and how he viewed Israel's history, his way. The psalmist, as he looks back, he is not being nostalgic. He's not pining for glory days. He's looking back to recount God's story, God's way. His story that the sovereign God is writing. And he's showing us all how to follow God's thoughts after him. See, this is a God-centered perspective. And so for us, even as we all take steps of action, we are responsible moral, moral agents. It is God who is writing our story. We do believe that, right? Is God writing your life story? I mean, you believe that and you hope in that, don't you? We might be able to say it because we wouldn't want it any other way, but we often get challenged in believing that. And that's our second point, clarity of God's discipline. We want to be clear about who God is and start to focus ourselves in a God-centered way on him and our thoughts, but we also want to be clear about God's discipline. Verse 9, 
Look at verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. Boom! Here is a shocking turn. Just as Israel's army was put to, I mean, just as Israel's enemies were put to shame by God, so now Israel's armies are being put to shame by God. And unfortunately, there's this consistency there. Just as the psalmist couldn't take credit for Israel's victories, so he had to acknowledge God for their defeats as well. God made them turn back from the foe. God rejected them and made them face shame. You know, God's face, he could light up thinking about um, his people with excitement, but he could also discipline his people. That's how the psalmist experiences and views the ups and downs of um, the history of, his, of God's people. And we have to recognize that the psalmist is experiencing something devastating. Look at verse 11. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. The psalmist here, he is describing that period in Israel's history of the exile. There were multiple exiles, and it was just a devastating time. God got them into the land, but he also got them out of the land. And the psalmist is trying to understand why God is doing all of this. It's like personally shameful, but it's worse than an individual's experience. This is like on a national scale, disaster, an existential threat because God's people were almost extinguished. People who boasted in their God were now being wiped out, extinct. And that made them the laughingstock of all the nations around them, disgraced and shamed. Now, follow along, because what really made this strange, this turn that was shocking, um, is, is what follows next. The psalmist maintains their innocence. Verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Now, when it came to the exiles, clearly God's people were being judged for their sin. Many had not remained faithful to God in their covenant relationship. That's why they were facing what they were facing. All of the prophets, all of the writings, that's what they're talking about. That's what they're dealing with. But there was a faithful remnant. Believers who were, like as the psalmist is saying, have not forgotten God, have been faithful, and yet here they are being treated unfairly in a devastating way. Did you hear or see or notice a cry of, it's not fair? It's not fair, God. We haven't done anything wrong, but why are we facing this? Do you see that? That's the situation they're in, though. You know, I'm the kind of guy when I'm driving, if someone cuts me off, that is so not right, that's so not fair, I have to cut them off too, right? I have to make sure I can overtake them and let them know. 
thankfully, that was me in my younger days. I'm not like that anymore. Now it's like, you want to cut me? That's fine. I don't care. I've grown just a little bit. But you understand what I'm saying. Just the slightest injustice can really trigger us, can it? Can really stick it into us. We feel it. And here is Israel in the face of extinction. We're not talking about an animal species being hunted down by greedy um, people, but God's people being wiped out by God. And the psalmist does not complain about him. He's trying to maintain his integrity as he processes the devastation and the discipline. This is what he says, verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. See, this is the psalmist being very conscious of God in his life. The remnant had been faithful throughout. They would not have acted any other way because like all of us as believers know that God knows our hearts. And so the psalmist is saying, we're innocent. God, you know our hearts. We've been faithful. And you know what, though? God knows their hearts. He knows that they weren't the ones meant for the punishment, and yet he put them through it. Why? Why the national disaster and misery? Unfortunately, they would have to be identified with the nation, even facing the same fate. It'd be a profound lesson they'd have to learn. The lesson, verse 22. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long like sheep to the slaughter. This is what it means to have a God-centered prayer. Summed up in that phrase at the start, verse 22 yet for your sake. For your sake, because of who you are, where you are God, you have not changed, you are still committed to your promises, and so I am accepting what I am going through, even though clearly it's not for my sake, but for your sake. Somehow, that has to be good for me. I don't understand. But I also can't say that God is wicked or um, wrong or disappointing to me. He's not punishing me. He's disciplining me for some greater good. What good is there in verse 22? Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long like sheep to the slaughter. What good is there? It is really hard to see, make sense of it. At the very least, though, this is where we are being pushed to believe, to be identified as the sheep, and to believe that God is my shepherd. It's a really strange experience to be in, and what's strange about it is that God expected his people to be there to fight through self, to have God and 
our relationship with God to prevail and have that define who we are. It's like I have to get out of my own way to be able to see God clearly. See, God disciplines us to discipline our thinking, to be clear about who he is. God is God. I am not. And that's how we have to start to see God. And when you do start to see God like that, then it's not so crazy to say, yet for your sake. Because God's worth it. We know it. We know it, yet we have to believe it and experience it. Yet for your sake. We reason it out, it kind of makes sense. But when you're in the thick of it, that's when it's like, why God, why me? Why does it have to be this way? You know, I shared, and at the risk of sharing this too much, I will bring this to a close, but it's just things are starting to become clearer for me. I shared that when my boys got into their accident, I knew the immediate implications for my son's future. That's what bummed me out. Sure, he had a cracked skull and, from this accident, and, and it looked really bad, and he was in a lot of pain, but it wasn't the physical pain that really bothered me. It was the fact that here was my son. He had the future all before him. He had hopes and dreams, and just out of a random accident, no fault of his, that could alter his life. And I was really twisted up about that. All of that drove me to my spiritual slump. It was multiple things, right? And I shared at the last congregational meeting that I was very careful to share it this way. God helped me. He got me through my spiritual slump. And then afterwards, I shared. I was able to share the good news. You know, my son got into the school of his dreams. In other words... I wasn't saying that God helped me out of my slump when God answered my prayers in the way that I wanted. No, he answered my prayers before I got what I wanted, where I had to wrestle with God that whatever would happen to my son's future, I am trusting you, O oh God. Whatever the outcome, wherever he goes, all of this will grow him, and it will grow me too. And I have to testify that I came to peace with it all before we found out anything about my son's college acceptance. You hear what I'm saying? My prayers were answered. God answered my prayers where I got to this place of willing trust. Even though the future was still uncertain and very scary, it wasn't easy, but I was trying to convince myself, yet for your sake... I don't know if that came through in our congregational meeting and not everyone was there, but um, I, I was able to give thanks to God that he answered prayer and then also share the good news about Jaden, right? And you know what? If, if my son did not get into the college of his choice, he would live another day, I would live another day, and we would embark on this journey of faith of working out, okay, now, so what are you doing to, in our lives? In a good way, learning to trust God. For your sake, God, not mine. I mean, now, isn't it so good that we get verse 3, that end line there? Your face lights up, for you delight in us. That's what the psalmist returns to. 
And again, even this, in another intriguing way, we're getting clarity about how God disciplines us and what all that means for us. And now lastly, clarity about God's love. Verse 23. Look at verse 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? Folks, I've been talking, but I haven't really brought this out, but I hope we can see what the psalmist is enduring is really devastating. I don't want to minimize that. The psalmist doesn't. It's to the point where he is like at the, he's so desperate, he's right at the outermost limit of godly complaining. A little bit more, and it's starting to become sinful. And why? Because the people, Israel, is going through Exile, invasion, oppression, it's real serious stuff. Awake, God. Stop acting like you're sleeping, God. And why would God hear and answer the prayer for help? It's verse 26. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. It's that last clause there, that last line, that we're going to unpack of its riches because that is the key. We see the phrase, for your sake, or a variation of it, right? Redeem us for your sake, for the sake of your steadfast love. Please listen to what this all means because this could be significant. And dare I say, Have we been misunderstanding God's love all this time? Okay? The psalmist is saying, save me because you love me, but save me so you could be seen as the God of steadfast love. Okay? In other words, save me because I need to be saved, but it's not just about me but how I can make it about you. You see how that's genuine love, where me being saved is not about me first, but about God. Even if it is where I benefit, I'm still making it about someone else, God. If I receive God's saving love and I'm benefited, all because he loves me and I have asked for it, and nothing else happens, well, then... Everything is just good for me, and that's it. My situation is better, right? And you know what? Let me just make it clear. God has acted like that for all of us in so many ways. But he doesn't want us to stay that way either. He wants us to truly experience the fullness of love, which is God God loves me, and he shows his love for me, and as a result, I too will show love for him. For your sake. So if I'm asking God for his saving love for me, for his sake, and he saves me, then I'm now being motivated to do something else. To love more, to love back, to show God, to let people know. You see, there's a motivation beyond just for me and myself, right? This is a true experience of God's love. It's where not only do I benefit, but I also am able to return. That's, I wonder if we get this. And if we do get this, 
Well, I hope all of us can testify to God's love. The way that God has worked in us. Even ways that, you know, he may not have answered the prayers that I want, but he has still worked in us for good, right? Anyone can testify to that, to God's love in that way? I hope you can. And in fact, you know what? Next week, annual meeting, we have opportunities. We need people to give testimonies. There's your opportunity. If you really believe God loved you and he has answered you, maybe you'll give a testimony, all right? Anyway, besides that, I receive love and am benefited, but I do it so I can make it about him. That is God-centered love and prayer. I wonder if we've been understanding God's love in a stunted way where I'm thankful for his love and all that he does for me, but not really grow in that love. You know, we can think that we're being loving by being very nice and polite, you know what? Society tells us to do that, so we do not want to mistake being nice and polite for being loving in the way that God calls us to love. And I wonder if the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is causing us to grow in the fullness of the Father's love. And this has to be more than just, you know, saying something like, okay, God, you did something for me, now I've got to do something back for you. Not in a transactional kind of way. Not in a okay, let me do what I think is right and nice, be polite, be, not be rude, all that kind of stuff. No, but are we growing in love to be able to say, yet for your sake? I mean, imagine facing all of our struggles with a for your sake kind of attitude. We would recover a lot more quickly, and we'd probably even grow in courage more as well. I needed to be rehabilitated in my understanding of the Father's love for me in this real way where I would be pushed, compelled to say, for the sake of your steadfast love, for your sake, and really mean it. And how did that happen for me? Well, have you ever been mistreated by someone else? I mean, when you are mistreated, how do you deal with it? How does your faith help you to deal with it? One of my mentors said to me that sheep bite, and it hurts. Through the years in ministry, I've had sheep bite, yell at me unjustly, speak unrighteously to me. It was very hard to bear, and oftentimes I did not respond well. But again... It's that injustice that you feel, sometimes slight, sometimes big. You're trying to do good, but then you get slammed for it. And it's really hard to maintain discipline and integrity. And what I realized was for a long time, I've just been licking my wounds. And it was this psalm that shook me out of myself, out of myself, because this was when I understood Jesus' death at the cross a little bit more than I had before. I experienced what Christ experienced. He did all things good and right, and what did he get for it? Crucifixion. He trusted the Father, he loved the Father, and in, as a result of that, he got the cross. The cross led to so much good, didn't it? And, and like my salvation, your salvation. And so 
now I'm starting to understand what that means. I'm starting to identify with Jesus a little bit more. I'm starting to realize, oh, this is what it means when he says, for your sake. For a while, I couldn't say it. I couldn't say, for your sake. And I was stuck. But in his grace and kindness, Jesus got me to understand and identify with what he endured for me. His steadfast love for me. And that is what healed me and freed me, where I can make it about God again, being released from my stuck place. That's, that was me experiencing the redemptive power of the cross in a fresh way where I was able to identify with Jesus, where this is the subtle key. I got to think about myself less and God more. That was the release. Folks, I needed to be rehabilitated in that experience of God's steadfast love. And he answered. See, God answers God-centered prayers by giving you the good news where you can trust God just a little bit more in the face of what you're going through. You're released to be able to trust him and not be stuck. In the face of it, you could actually start to say, yet for your sake. So, application, as I draw all things to a close. Verse 22, being able to say, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. That requires an experience of supernatural love, the steadfast love of the Lord. And when you experience it, it really ought to be like an out-of-body kind of experience. Sometimes it can happen overnight, but usually it's built up. And this is what it might look like. At the heartbeat level, what we do, what we're responsible for, is that with every impulsive thought or temptation to complain or lash out or be suspicious of God, the psalmist had to restrain himself, deny himself, and allow God to be God in the relationship. He would submit and surrender and deny self. So there is our application. (laughs) Experience the strangeness of thinking about yourself less, even denying yourself in little ways. And when you try to just embody that thought and live it out, you will be surprised at how we so impulsively think about ourselves first. It's like we don't know anything else. So try that. And let me warn you, it's going to be scary. Because all of us, we immediately think, worst case scenario, how is everyone going to take advantage of me? I'm not trying to tell us we're going to be doormats or to be slaves to other people. What we're trying to do is build up the conditioning of being able to say, yet for your sake I will endure. For your sake I will go through the fire. As we get built up like this, start trusting, oh, this way is actually the good and right way that God has for us. Then we can start to go on the offensive even, where we're with courage, we'll say, for your sake, I will step out of the comfort, my comfort zone for the kingdom. For your sake, I will be willing to make this sacrifice. For your sake, I will spend time with this person. For your sake and that person's sake, I might even consider changing for them. For your sake, I will pray God-centered prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word to us, and we do pray that 
through the power of this word and your spirit, you would help us to see you, to envision you, to behold you, O God. As God over us, whose face lights up and who delights in us and who would still even discipline us in love. Help us to see that most clearly at the cross. How can we deny that you love us? No, you loved us. And that's why you sent Jesus. And that's why we're saved. And so we pray that you would now grow us in that love where we could even start to say, yet for your sake and not my own. Strengthen us in that. Give us that conviction. Help us to see the great fruit that, bear, that can be born from all, think, that kind of thinking. Where we think of you as God over God, God. God is God over me and of me less. It's for your sake we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.